tomorrow, gentlemen. We'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. The pools, the casino, big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower. Bellagio. Riviera. The Mirage. Flamingo. Sahara. The MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesars Palace, is it? On a camel. They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The Strip is just the most amazing stretch of road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kicking ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. Steve Wynn is probably the biggest name in modern gaming. He's definitely one of the biggest in gaming history. Like Walt Disney before him, Steve Wynn saw the way things were and dreamed of how they could be better, then brought them to life. He's a visionary with a gift for self-promotion, a legacy of world-renowned landmarks, and a charm that can make him instantly likable. This is the story of an icon. Steve Wynn was born Stephen Weinberg in New Haven, Connecticut, January 27, 1942. To avoid anti-Jewish discrimination, his family changed their last name to Wynn in 1946. His father, Mike, ran a string of bingo parlors on the east side of the United States, stretching from Connecticut to Florida. However, at the time, bingo was technically illegal. Like organized crime in a post-Kefauver committee world, Las Vegas was a chance to take an illegal gambling operation to legit status. Mike Wynn hoped to do the same with his bingo halls. A friend at the New Frontier who owned a stake in the Silver Slipper got Mike the opportunity to set up shop on the second floor of that property. So, in 1952, Mike brought his son with him to Las Vegas for a two-week trip. At the age of 10, Steve fondly recalls the experience. Quote, There was a magic in this place. It was like stepping back into the frontier. Casino owners were king. They owned the town. They were glamorous, they had beautiful women, and lots of money. Steve also recalls that this is the longest, uninterrupted by business, frame of time that he had his father's attention. Their relationship was described as more of a friendship than father-son. In fact, Steve didn't call his father dad. He referred to him by his first name, Mike. During the day, the two enjoyed riding horses all over a largely undeveloped desert landscape. And at night, after he put Steve to bed, Mike would go out and satisfy his inner gambler. Mike loved to gamble. If it moved and someone would give action on it, Steve's father would take it. The story goes, one night, Steve woke up to an empty room. So we got dressed and went out into the Vegas night to find his father. Experiencing Vegas at night, the lights, the glamour, the action, captured Steve's imagination unlike anything in his life at that time. He remembered thinking, quote, what a place to live. After the two weeks were up, Mike Wynn was broke, losing all his money at the tables. On top of that, Mike was determined to be an unacceptable candidate for a gaming license by the Nevada Gaming Commission. To make matters worse, Mike had already set up run, and close his bingo operation at the Silver Slipper, unable to compete with better run competition. So, Mike and his son returned home, never again attempting to enter the Las Vegas market. 
Determined to give his son the opportunity to be a solid citizen, like a doctor or a lawyer, Steve received a first-rate education at the University of Pennsylvania. However, on weekends, he would return home from college to help run the bingo halls. Steve would meet his future wife at the age of 20. Elaine was the daughter of his father's close friend and business partner in Florida, Michael Pascal. If that name sounds familiar, it's probably because Steve would hire his wife's nephew, Andrew Pascal, years later at the Golden Nugget, where he would eventually rise to senior VP of Wynn Resorts, before going on to found Play Studios, the company behind the My Vegas games. Steve and Elaine met while on vacation, fixed up by their fathers, attempting to play matchmaker, and it worked. The two planned to be married after college, but his father would never see that day. In the spring of 1963, a few weeks before Steve would graduate, his father died on the operating table during open heart surgery. Open heart surgery wasn't nearly as commonplace a procedure as it is today, and the risk was made very clear to Mike pre-op. Before going into surgery, just in case he didn't make it, Mike shared with his son that he owed nearly $200,000 to various loan sharks and bookies. Mike Wynn was 46 at the time of his death. Two months later, Steve married Elaine, and by the end of the 60s, the couple had two daughters. A man's gambling debts died with him. That was the common practice at the time. However, the Wins didn't see it that way. And Steve made quite an impression on a few people when he insisted on paying off his father's debt after he died. Those encounters not only earned respect, that respect developed into friendships. Those friendships, and their connection to organized crime, combined with Steve's tremendous success in the gaming industry, would be called into question for the rest of his life. It will never be clear if the relationships Wynn developed while running his father's bingo halls were nothing more than that, and his business opportunities in gaming were just the results of hard work, or if Wynn was a squeaky clean frontman for organized crime's expansion into gaming. But the facts are this. Steve Wynn made a name for himself in gaming, an industry that will forever be linked in some way to organized crime, and for that, anyone who wants to find a link between someone who works in the industry and organized crime can do so, either legitimately or imagined. Hell, that goes for anything. If someone wants to find fault in anything anyone does, they can, one way or another. The salacious nature of these allegations, true or false, hold little interest to us and therefore will not be addressed in any 360 Vintage Vegas. Four years after his father's death, at the age of 24, Steve Wynn met E. Perry Thomas. The two developed a close relationship and would eventually help to reshape the entire city of Las Vegas. That started in 1967, when Wynn was able to get a loan to purchase his first stake in a Las Vegas property, the New Frontier. He paid $45,000 for 3% ownership. Days before the New Frontier was purchased by Howard Hughes for $24 million, Wynn got a loan from Valley Bank for $30,000 to purchase another 2% in the property. The timing of the purchase has led to speculation that Wynn knew what was coming and leveraged his position. That's because E. Perry Thomas was not only the head of the bank Wynn got the loan from, but was also Howard Hughes' personal banker, facilitating all his asset acquisitions while in Vegas. Four years later, former majority owners of the Frontier were indicted by the federal grand jury for hidden ownership. Wynn was called to testify, 
but was never included in the indictment nor accused of any wrongdoing. Years later, he would admit that he was less than forthcoming in his testimony, not because he was trying to hide anything, but because he was intimidated by the person they sat him next to, Chicago crime boss Tony Accardo. After the Frontier sale, Wynn bought into a liquor distribution company, Best Brands, the exclusive provider of Dewar Scotch. Despite being very successful in the venture, it wasn't where his passion lied. He wanted to get back into gaming. His next opportunity may be his most controversial. In 1971, four years after the Frontier sale, Wynn was able to get together enough money, $1.1 million, with the help of E. Perry Thomas and a partner to purchase 1.1 acres of land on the corner of Flamingo Road in the Strip next to Caesars Palace. The property wasn't particularly appealing at the time. It was nothing more than a parking lot with power cables strung over top of it. The land was owned by Howard Hughes and at the time was being used for that parking lot by Caesars Palace. Here's where the controversy comes in. Howard Hughes didn't sell land. In fact, this piece of strip real estate is the only land Howard Hughes sold in Vegas while he was alive. And he sold it for half its value. How could this have happened? The answer is pretty simple. E. Perry Thomas. While it can never be proven, it's pretty easy to imagine a scenario where Thomas called in a favor to Hughes to help Wynn get back into gaming. Or perhaps Hughes was impressed with Wynn, as E. Perry was, and wanted to give the kid a break. Whatever the reason, it happened. When Wynn approached Caesars with the opportunity to purchase the land from him for twice what he paid for it, they scoffed. First arguing that Hughes had told them that they would have the first right of refusal should he ever desire to sell the land. And second, challenging that they were the only option to sell it to, as no one else would be interested in the land. So, Wynn started planning and publicly discussed plans to build a boutique hotel on the site similar to what would be built across the street, known today as Cromwell. He even went as far as to have a full-scale model done for a 500-room hotel casino. Ultimately, the threat of competition forced Caesars to buy the land from Wynn for $2.25 million. It's unclear if Wynn's intentions to build were real or just a tactic to put pressure on Caesars to buy. Either way, it worked. And Steve now had the capital he needed to get back into gaming. The Golden Nugget was one of the first casinos in Vegas to be incorporated and publicly traded on the stock exchange. On E. Perry Thomas' advice, Wynn started buying shares in the Golden Nugget in 1969 and continued buying shares as often as he could afford to. Thomas had plans to purchase controlling interest in the Golden Nugget. However, the Security and Exchange Commission halted the sale for various reasons. Since he couldn't acquire it, Thomas did the next best thing. He helped Wynn to do it. Small by strip standards, the Golden Nugget offered Wynn the opportunity to do more than just own a casino. It gave him the ability to develop. While it was one of the larger casinos downtown, at the time, the Golden Nugget didn't have a hotel. It did, however, have plenty of available real estate around it to expand into. By 1973, leading an investment group that included Jackie Gone and Al Parvin, Wynn owned 25% of the Golden Nugget majority interest in the company, and had been approved for a gaming license. Fun fact, Al Parvin's background was in interior design. 
he's the man responsible for introducing the casino carpet Vegas properties are known for, starting with the Flamingo. Wynn uses leverage to question current CEO Bucky Blaine's ability to run the property, claiming the well-documented theft going on at the Golden Nugget was indirectly Blaine's fault. Fortunately, Blaine wasn't interested in a fight, and the two worked out a deal where Blaine would be compensated in exchange for stepping aside so Wynn could take over. Wynn wasted no time getting millions in financing to remodel and expand the Golden Nugget. Once in charge, legend of his temper began, showing no patience for anything less than he expected. Steve inherited his temper from his parents. Not a violent or abusive family, the Wins would argue all differences of opinion vehemently, primarily with shouting matches. It was just the way they communicated with one another. The Golden Nugget Rooming House opened in 1977, giving the property its first 579 rooms. During that time, revenue increased at the property by $12 million. Over the next 10 years, the Golden Nugget would become the premier property on Fremont Street, referred to by many as a strip resort downtown. In 1980, Wynn expanded the Golden Nugget brand into Atlantic City. Atlantic City had reduced Vegas to the number two gaming destination in the world after they legalized gambling in 1976. In the 11 years following, Vegas had several new properties open like Knob Hill, Vegas World, Barbary Coast, Imperial Palace, and Westward Ho. But none of them were able to bring the title back to Vegas. While history will tell you Vegas was in trouble, the fact is gaming was more profitable than it ever had been. Each property seemed to have its niche and served it very well. Caesars took care of the high rollers, the Hilton handled conventions, and Flamingo was a huge slot joint. Wynn was inspired by the idea of catering to all of them under the same roof on a scale the market had never seen before. The idea for what would become the Mirage began in 1978, after Wynn and Michael Milken met. If the name Michael Milken sounds familiar to you, it's probably because he ended up going to jail for one of the largest insider trading scandals in history. After being indicted on 98 counts of racketeering, insider trading, and fraud, which he eventually pled guilty to six counts of, spent two years in prison, paid over a billion in fines, and was banned from Wall Street. But before all that, the two began to discuss the idea of creating a fantasy meets reality oasis in Vegas. While Milken loved the idea, he knew he wouldn't be able to sell such a massive project to Wall Street since Wynn had never built anything from the ground up. They needed to establish a track record of success. So the two turned their attention to a smaller project in a new market, Atlantic City. Milken raised $160 million for the Golden Nugget Atlantic City project by selling high-risk, high-yield bonds, aka junk bonds, to Wall Street. The Golden Nugget AC opened December 12, 1980. Thanks to his gift for self-promotion, including his legendary commercials with resident performer Frank Sinatra, the property was a huge success, becoming the number one property in the market three years after it opened. However, Wynn's time in Atlantic City didn't last long. After years of legendary Atlantic City bureaucracy, namely centered around Wynn's alleged ties to organized crime, Steve was annoyed. Seeing a chance to get out, he sold to Bally's in 1987 for $440 million, twice what experts believed it was worth at the time. Truth was, 
R&D on Wynn's original idea for the strip resort in Vegas had been in development since 1985. What it would become would forever solidify Wynn's status as a legend in Las Vegas, even if it was only the beginning of what he would do in the city. Originally called the Golden Nugget on the Strip, Wynn said he wanted to draw people to Vegas like Walt Disney World draws people to Florida. He hired Joel Bergman to design the property, the man credited with helping invent the mega resort concept with the International, best known as the Las Vegas Hilton. Bergman was a student of the subtleties of Disney's public spaces, studying how they encourage people to linger in an area and enjoy themselves. While Joel is recognized as the architect on the project, he admits Wynn was involved in every aspect of the process. In fact, in Bergman's office, two drafting tables were set up, one for him and one for Wynn. He would go on to not only design the Mirage, but Treasure Island, Paris, and Caesar's Augustus and Octavius Towers. Wynn took some of the money from the sale of the Atlantic City Golden Nugget and put it towards the new Vegas project. But most was invested back into the Golden Nugget on Fremont Street. So Milken went to work raising capital for the new project. In 1987, Wynn bought the Castaways, the property located just north of Caesars Palace, this time from Howard Hughes company Sumacorp, and announced his plans to build the world's largest private hotel, a South Seas-themed resort. Wynn said in an interview that the idea for the theme was inspired by a Neil Simon appearance on The Tonight Show. Johnny Carson asked Simon, how do you make comedy? Simon said, I look for conflict. The next day, Wynn went to the Sands, parked his car by the curb, and sat on the hood looking across the street at the property he had just bought, reflecting on what Simon said about looking for conflict. We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to the enhanced version of the podcast, often with bonus content, exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360vegaspodcast.com. Yeah.